and I'm an alcoholic. This is an opening meeting of the Atlantic Group of Alcoholics Anonymous, and all are welcome to attend. We hope that what you learn here may be helpful to your recovery and or understanding. The format of this meeting is two 10-minute speakers followed by our information break, and then our main speaker who will speak for 30 minutes. Our first 10-minute speaker is Danny C. Danny, I'm an alcoholic. I'm very grateful to be here today. Uh, the person who invited me to speak asked me not to mention them by name, but I'm very grateful to that person and will respect their anonymity. <laughs> Gotta speak into the mic, I'm really sorry. Right here? Is this good? Yes. Um, I also haven't worn a suit and tie in a little while because I got laid off three months ago, so it uh, feels really good to put a tie back on, have an excuse to do that. Um, I'm also pretty nervous because this is the first time I'm speaking in person since before the pandemic. Um, and I'm usually not nervous in front of a microphone. I, I rap, I perform on stage, I've done public speaking my whole life. I can take off my mask, I forgot that. Um, but I guess I'll just start from the beginning. Um, I grew up in the Bronx in a housing project and uh, we were really poor. And for those of you who are my age or older and have been in New York City your whole life, you probably remember the different world that we lived in back then. And um, I think that that environment really would affect me later on um, when it comes to denial of my adulthood with alcoholism because you know it was the crack era and there were dope fiends in the street and crackheads and I think, you know, around my late teens, early 20s, when in hindsight I can see that's when I became an alcoholic, um, my vision of one was something different, and I refused to accept people telling me I had a problem because I wasn't that, you know? Um, on top of what was going, by the way, I just want to make a disclaimer, I always feel the need to say this, I loved growing up in the Bronx, if there's any place to grow up in the ghetto, it's New York City, I had a great childhood, we were poor, there was a lot of rough times, and I'll get into more of that in a bit, but I also had a lot of fun, and I had a big loving family, um, and before I start talking smack about my parents, I just want to say I love both my parents too, um, and, and I recognize all you know, all the good things that they did for me and all their sacrifices. Um, and on that note, um, you know, I, I grew up in an abusive household. Um, I'm a survivor of child abuse, and it's taken me a while to get accustomed to using that word survivor instead of victim. Um, my father was an alcoholic, um, but oddly enough, he's not the one who uh, hit me or my siblings. My parents broke up when I was four years old, got divorced. My father stayed drinking until I was about 13, until exactly I was 13, which is oddly enough when I had my first beer. Uh, my father is sober, and I'm so grateful that he is. Had he not gotten sober when I was a teenager, um, you know, I don't know what trajectory my life would have taken from there. Uh, but of course, he wasn't present, you know, a lot when I was a, when I was a, a kid and my brother, my older sister. Um, and it took me a while to accept him trying to be a father. You know, one, I was a teenager in my rebellious years, and um, 
you know, but I knew enough because he was sober now that I had to hide everything I was doing from him. You know, um, won't get into extracurricular stuff because this is AA, but there were projects too, I'll just say that. Um, but alcohol was always the, the main theme, at least it became that later on. Um, you know, my mother was the one who was actually the one hitting us in the house, and it was vicious, you know. Um, there was just basically almost on a, a, a daily thing, and I'm, I'm not talking about spanking your kid, I'm talking about punching, kicking, um, you know, uh, just verbally abusive, physically abusive, which amounts to emotional emotional abuse and uh, psychological abuse. You know, your, your parents, our parents are like gods when you're little, you know, and um, when you have abusive parents, it's like automatic Stockholm syndrome for a kid, right? Because your parents tell you they love you. My mother would say that, like, I hate you because I love you. you believe that, partly true, you know, which makes it twisted. So uh, you could see how that can affect someone. She would hit us in public. I see that still today, riding the trains, right? In New York City, see someone hitting their kids, you know, beating the crap out of them on the train, and it's like, oh my God, that poor kid. And then it, it, I sometimes forget and I remember, like, oh my God, that was, that was us, you know? Uh, that was me and my brothers and sisters. And, um, you know, it, uh, it really damaged my self-confidence at a young age. Uh, to say the least, thank you. Um, I don't think that's the reason I'm an alcoholic. I have no idea why I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> um, you know, heard lots of theories from science and you know genetics, and it's hereditary. To be honest, at this point, I don't even care. I just know that I am one, and I accept that, and I accept the help that I've received from people in these rooms. But I do know the reasons why I drank. And started at that young age and continued on through life, through high school, through college, where it really took a turning point where my older brother passed away. He was an alcoholic. He died in a drunk driving accident. He was the passenger in that car, not the driver. Um, and I was in college at the time, and of course, the college atmosphere, you know, it's very enabling. And, um, you know, I, I won't go into everything because I don't have enough time, but arrests, hospitalizations, you know, fights, you name it, just a, a tons of, of bad things. But, um, you know, uh, the one story I will mention quickly is that some years after my brother passed away in that car accident, I crashed my car with my friend in the driver's seat and uh, the seatbelt and airbag saved our lives. Um, and I remember being so upset at my friend. He was on drugs. I was high and drunk. And he had pills on him and he had to throw them out of the car and he left, fled the scene because you know he was loaded and I was so upset at him and it just goes to show you the insanity of our disease you know that I blamed him when I was in the driver's seat and um, you know I certainly owe him an amends uh, for that and that was many years ago um, that's a real story an actual story but it can serve as a metaphor for a lot of things in life, you know, where um, I can blame someone else when I'm the person in the driver's seat. And all we can do is learn from our mistakes. Um, we're not perfect, but we do need to be careful. I need to be careful. You know, um, my actions affect other people. Um, my stepmother was very Alanani, uh, reminded me of that, right? We don't, we're not accountable for our intentions, we're accountable for our actions. 
it's, uh, it's sad when lessons from my mistakes have to come at someone else's expense. It's unfair that uh, someone else should suffer because of my ignorance, my immaturity. But I'm here today. I don't have to live in shame. I can continue to be sober. Sometimes I feel like I don't always get the love and support that I need in this program, but that's not true. Um, I just don't get the love and support that I want, <laughs> but I certainly get the love and support that I need. I'm sober, I've been through a heck of a lot. I lost my mother last year. Um, that was several months after losing my brother, a month after my stepbrother, a month after uh, her amputation. I'm glad that she got to see me make a year sober. She passed away 10 days after, after that. And um, life has not been easy, but to have the moments of joy because of this program, I've been able to get through those hard times. And I've been able to stay sober with rarely a moment where I felt like picking up a drink. And this is after 10 years of relapse, and I'm coming up on two and a half months. My birthday is a week from today, and I'm gonna get to celebrate it sober again. Um, and I certainly didn't do this on my own. You know, I had a lot of help uh, with that. So I'm very grateful to be here. I plan on staying sober till my birthday for many more anniversaries to come. And I hope that I was able to share something that uh, will help someone else not drink today. And I have a minute left, so I think I'm just gonna go on to say, um, you know, uh, to anyone who's new out there, get a sponsor. Um, that's probably the most important thing you can do because you need to work the steps. People are gonna tell you that is an important part of the program. You need a sponsor to do that. You really need someone to guide you through the steps. Um, I do not recommend delaying it. I did. And um, now that I work them, you know, the introspection and the growth that you're gonna receive from it is incredible. You know, I can live my life with dignity today. You know, um, I still pray for the same things. I pray for confidence. You know, I pray for joy, I pray for peace, but I also pray for humility. I pray that I can help someone else. I pray for other people. I believe you could do that, you know? Um, and I do all that with what I learned from all of you. I'm so grateful. Thank you. This room, again, is really special, and the people in it are really special um, for a number of reasons. Hopefully, I'll get to cover them. Um, I may not get to cover everything, but what's rem remarkable to me is that we're back, and uh, just how time goes and how life is so interesting, and one of the reasons this room is special is two years ago, almost to the day, uh, I got some really good news from one of my daughters. She got into the college of her choice, and it was really exciting. And what was more exciting was that I wasn't there, I wasn't home, but I was so thrilled. And I was so thrilled to tell 
some of the people that mean a lot to me here, my, my sober sisters, and I can see a number of them, and that joy. And I think that that's something that, you know, to sort of end the story in the beginning, what it was like, what it's, you know, what it's like now. It's, it's having that warmth and that joy and that love, which has embraced me from the time that I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous. So I'm also a New York City kid. I am not your age. Um, but what's been interesting about the story, and um, I will try not to bore people because I'm qualified and some people heard it yesterday, what I think is interesting about the story is that in some ways my life was the antithesis of yours and that I grew up in, and not that your parents didn't love you, but I'm an only child and was extremely spoiled, some would say, um, and indulged, and, and I did get to, to live and do some things that, that were privileged. I got to travel a lot, I got to um, buy almost anything that I wanted, I was surrounded by love, told that I was the best thing ever, and it didn't matter, because we're both here, right? We're sitting next to each other, and I think that that's what's so interesting about alcoholism. Um, the other thing that I think I've been trying to think of different ways, again, to, to say something different than last night, but I will say something that resonated with people, and, and it's really been a guiding principle of mine, which is an acronym I thought of, which really does sum up largely the way I feel about things, and that is my life um, was and sometimes continues to be driven by fears. And by that I mean fright, ego, anger, resentment, and shame. And uh, again, what's interesting is that it doesn't matter where you come from or what kind of background you have because, at least for me, it's in my head. There is nothing that has made me feel that way except, you know, I can say, well, I've been loved too much so I felt really entitled, so I thought everything, I thought I should be given things all the time, and when I wasn't, I felt less than, so it's that bigger than and less than. And the other thing that I think is interesting is the irony of the unmanageability of our lives. Admitted that our lives were unmanageable. In my opinion, estimation when I was drinking, alcohol was the only thing that really made my life manageable. Um, I drank like a normal person, I guess, through my, you know, my teens. But what's in, uh, too, when I sort of sit back and think about my story, in college I drank, ooh, in college uh, I drank the way I guess normal college kids did, but the difference for me is I drank when I studied because I was nervous, I went to the college of my dreams, I was very fortunate, studied what I wanted, but I needed, I needed alcohol to focus which again, to me, is kind of a fallacy because certainly the fact that you're having to use something that is, you know, alters your mind, but I needed my mind to be altered because of the fact that I was living my dream but still wasn't comfortable in my skin. And, um, you know, people were talking about consequences. One of the consequences that I suffered in college was I wanted to go abroad, but I wanted to go to 
Italy because I had already, no, I wanted to go to Spain because I had already been to Italy, but I wanted to study Italian. And what wound up happening was I would have Italian quizzes. They said, you know, you have to take a language. So I was like, okay, fine. I'll compromise and go to Italy. And I had to take quiz, quizzes on Fridays. Thank you, five minutes, I see that. Uh, quizzes on Fridays. But of course, Thursdays, I couldn't give up going to the bar. And since it helped me focus, I wound up uh, studying on the bar line. Now, needless to say, I didn't get the grade that I needed to in Italian, and I wasn't able to go. Um, so I, um, that was one of the consequences. Just to fast forward, because again, since I'm not 25, I drank for a really long time. I drank for over 25 years, so I won't talk about all of the different things, um, all of the different anecdotes. But I think, again, that fears, the, you know, the fright, the ego, the anger, resentment, and shame were so tied into my drinking. And I'll just talk about sort of the, the fear and the shame. Um, I was really afraid to be discovered as not being as fabulous as I thought I was, and not everyone thought that, including myself, and I remember at one point saying, there's no tougher critic on me than myself, and again, not understanding why, because there was no reason. There was nothing in my life. I'm still very close with my parents. I'm still um, very close with a lot, of, a lot of people, but did see that things were getting unmanageable. That alcohol was no longer, it was continuing to work for me, but it was not manageable anymore. And by that, I mean it wasn't manageable in my own life. I was still able to manage to be a good mom, to go to PTA meetings, to know how long my husband's timer was going to work when he was brushing his teeth so I could go to the closet and have a swig of alcohol. I could manage all of that. I could manage being the person that would go to different liquor stores and come up with different stories about why I had little, you know, it was like the little bottles of flavored vodka because I was having a party with my girlfriends every single day when I went to the, um, to the liquor store. But of course, I needed, I could manage that and was concerned about what the, the guy in the liquor store said. But what I realized the day before I surrendered is that I couldn't manage, I knew things were, were getting bad, and I, I couldn't manage doing what I was doing anymore. I couldn't manage standing on the subway tracks at seven in the morning with my daughter, who was in middle school, and taking her to, um, to college, not to college, to, to school, and knowing that potentially I could fall on the tracks and what that would do, because I was managing my day with alcohol. So the night that I, um, again, sort of surrendered was a regular night, went to a holiday party, um, drank like the dads, um, which meant to me, I meant I was drinking more because the moms would drink the wine and I would drink before and after and drink the scotch in between because I thought that that was also a badge of honor. As you can see, I'm not very tall, but I can drink a lot. And um, I can certainly drink my Australian husband under the table and uh, used to tease him about that. And uh, uh, used to tease him about the fact that he was not a good countryman, not sticking up for his people. But I was drinking like an Australian and he wasn't. Anyway, um, went to the party, drank more, and, and you know, Googled Alcohol's Anonymous meetings, don't know why, don't know what happened, but found one, um, a beginner's meeting at Citigroup at um, 7.45, and I still go to that meeting all the time. 
happened to find it, took my daughter, was not drinking that day, first time, took my daughter to the train as I had, um, and then walked into City, and was greeted by two people who've since become, one is my sponsor, one is one of my sober sisters, um, the Mighty Row 18, and uh, from, from upstairs, some of you may know what that means, but at that point, my life changed, and my life changed for a number of reasons. One, I think I was just done. One minute, thank you. One, I was done. But the other, quite frankly, is because of all of you, or people like you, and the honesty that uh, someone that you share every time, every day, the honesty with which you show up, and um, don't mind you know, being someone who can talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly, has really empowered me. So certainly fears have not gone away. This morning I woke up and I was like, oh God, I'm just so scared. But I'm walking through the fears. And what used to, what I had to use alcohol for in the past, I'm walking through it. It's, it's amazing. I don't know, is it odd or is it God? Hopefully it's God. Um, I believe it's God. But I also do believe that in some ways it's, it's a higher power, but you know, there's that acronym group of drunks or whatever it is. So I want to thank you all for my almost five years. I also plan to be sober um, for many more. And with that, I'll say goodbye. Hi, my name is Derek, and I'm an alcoholic. As we said, this meeting is open to anyone. However, we are an anonymous fellowship and ask that you, what you hear here and what you see here remain here. And our main speaker tonight is Sam. Hi, everybody. My name is Sam, and I'm an alcoholic. Grateful to be here tonight, being sober uh, one day at a time by the grace of God and by the program and fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I begin all my qualifications by saying that it was a fellowship that attracted me. I liked coming to the meetings, which my sponsor told me was a form of fellowship. Um, I liked going to the diner after the meetings. I liked going to the movies after the Saturday night meeting. All the fun stuff, Phil W. Dinner Dance, all the fun stuff. But it was the program of Alcoholics Anonymous the first 164 pages of our big book and the 12 suggested steps of recovery that enabled me to change the person that I was and the way that I was living one day at a time. And for that I am grateful. Uh, the essentials are I have a sponsor, his name is Anthony G, and Anthony has a sponsor. My home group is City Group, we're around the corner here on 54th and Lex. Every day at 1230, we're back in the building, come join us. And my sobriety date is May 2nd, 2000. And one, so I haven't found it necessary to pick up a drink or a mind altering substance in more than 20 years now, one day at a time. And that's, uh, like, that's a miracle because I drank and did other things for 23 years. I picked up as a teenager when I was 15. I didn't find the rules of AA until I was age 38. And I uh, did a lot of damage and caused a lot of heartache in those 23 years. And, um, you know, at the end of my run, I was a falling down drunk. And, um, you know, having lost everything, jobs, homes, cars, lives, everything that that's behind about anything, I just wanted to drink and be left alone. That's how I was at the end of my run. I was alone in my mom's basement with a quarter of doers, just trying to kill myself one day at a time. 
And uh, today my life is nothing like that. I've been rocketing into fourth dimension of existence. I have a life around my wildest dreams, whatever you like, out of all big book. And, um, and so how did I come back? So, you know, what it was like, it wasn't working anymore. I tried to do other things for 23 years. I picked up in uh, high school. I was going into high school. A buddy of mine had just graduated high school. He didn't know what he was going to do with his life. His dad bought a liquor store in town. I grew up in Northern Bergen County, where I still live. And, um, and his dad bought a liquor store, and I used to hang around with him in the back of the liquor store. And I wasn't drinking, I wasn't interested in it. But after a while, I wanted to, you know, why, why was business so brisk? Why was, you know, why was he doing so well at this store? There was always people in there. And um, I didn't like the taste of beer. That changed, uh, obviously. But uh, I didn't like the taste of beer initially. But I did like the hard liquor, because you can mix that with other stuff. So I liked Jack Daniels and Toad, or uh, Rummy Toad. I liked uh, Southern Cuffin and whatever, orange shoes. I liked vodka with literally anything. Seven up, a wine punch, I don't care what it was. You can mix vodka with anything. And, um, so I was, a hard, I was a hard drinker, right? This is in high school, in the, in the 70s, and I'm a hard drinker already. I'm bringing pints of booze to school. Uh, the, liquor, the, the liquor, the driver's age had changed in Jersey at the time. So a bunch of guys, you know, they, they missed the cutoff, and they used to hang around on the street corner. That was always my goal, to hang around with the cool kids on the street corner. And the fact that my buddy owned the liquor store, so he wouldn't get in trouble, he'd give me the booze to give the cool kids on the corner, and so I started hanging around with them. And now, you know, I found myself. This was my belonging. And I'd stand up there, I had a denim jacket with a stone's tongue on the back, so on the back. And I'd stand up there with a pint of brandy in one pocket, you know, a pint of Daniels in the other pocket. And I'd stand up there either freezing my butt off or sweating my butt off. But always up on the street and wanted drinking. And, um, and that's how I got through high school. And uh, I didn't know what I was going to do next. So a buddy of mine told me he went to college, and college was awesome because there were kegs and quarter kegs and girls and all this fun stuff. So I signed up and I went to college. And I went to, I went to Jersey State School and, um, and it wasn't mine. There were girls and there was kegs and there were beer balls and there were bombs. There was everything. I went to college. And, um, you know, I fit right in. But then I graduated, you know, I, actually I got kicked out of house in my senior year. They put me on board probation, double secret probation, whatever it was, for a number of years. And the first night of my senior year, I was walking around with an open Budweiser. They had a strict no open container policy that year, they kicked me out the first night. So that has the consequences of coming into place. Now I got to commute from my parents' house up and down Route 17 in New Jersey, an hour in each direction every day to get to, to, get, to get to school. And uh, I got out, and uh, none of the want dads back then, you know, had job listings that included skills like beer balls and quarter kegs and bombs. So I did nothing for a year. I sat, uh, I got a series of dead end crappy jobs just so I could um, run a bar tab. And that, you know, that's the next progression. It's now I'm all grown up. I'm hanging around in a bar in the town I grew up in called Buckleheads. And I was so proud to be one of the town Buckleheads. Like I wore that like such a badge of honor. And, um, and that's what I do. I work, I get paid on Friday, they cash my check, they clean up my bar tab, I start a new bar tab, and then I go right back on my bar stool. Every great moment in the mid-80s, I can tell you where I was for game six of the Mets. I was in the third bar stool from the end at Knuckleheads. I know exactly where I was, because that's where I was most days and nights. 
So after a year, a year and a half of doing that, I, I, I decided to get my act together, and uh, I got into the business world, and I got a job uh, with this international shipping company, these big container ships that go in and out of Port Elizabeth, and uh, I go to the airport over there, and um, you know, I got a job as a, as a shipping clerk filling out forms and triplicates, they were on computers and everything. And um, eventually I started to get these races of promotions based on my ability to whine and dine the clients. I, uh, the older guys, they thought it would be funny to bring the new kid out, the little guy out on these uh, business lunches. And I started succeeding on these business, lun business lunches and bringing home business. So now I'm getting these races of promotions based on my ability to whine and dine these clients. And I ended up getting New York City, the crown jewel of this international shipping empire, and that was my sales territory. I was given a company credit card, and I was told to work hard and play hard, and that's all I needed to hear. So now I'm one of these guys, every day you can find me, most days you can find me at Smith & Walensky's, Ben Benson, The Palm, Maloney & Porcelli, all these Midtown joints. I get there at 1130, I do all the bartenders. I get there at 1130, I have a doers in water. Finally get there, I just got here. Why don't we have a doers in water before we go to the table? <laughs> Try to have another doers in water. Then we go to the table, and uh, I always play it safe when ordering the wine, because one goes with chicken and fish, and the other goes with steak or whatever it was. I never found out what the plot was. I didn't care. I was going to drink them both anyway. Like, I, thought was, I thought it was ridiculous. If I have steak on my plate, it's still white wine. I can't drink it. But why not? You know? So uh, I always order two bottles of wine, and then I can't stress my love of the after lunch portion. I had a whole Sambuca period and the Gramagnet era and the Cavassier days, and I was so sophisticated. And they'd be setting the Buka on fire, and the Gramagnet on fire, and the Buka, they'd be putting the beans in it. Oh, it's rigmarole. I'd be like, just go get me another. You know? like, stop with the show and tell. And, um, and I used to get polluted. That's the next progression. I couldn't go back to my office, and I couldn't go see other clients. So what I used to do most days was take the six train and get off. Uh, I'd ask the place and walk over to a place called McSorley's on the Lower East Side. I'm sure some of you people are familiar with that spot. And um, and and I knew everybody at McSorley's. I knew the bouncers. I knew the waiters. I knew the owner. And um, that's my I had a life moment. You know, I, I could get in there on St. Patrick's Day when people line up behind police barricades for hours to try to get in. I could walk in there anytime I wanted on St. Patrick's Day. They take me through the front door, they escort me around the back, and sit me at the owner's table, and I'd sit at the owner's table drinking dog beer until I was puking on my shoes, going, look at me, puking on my shoes at the owner's table on St. Patrick's Day in McSorley's. How's my life gonna get better than this? <laughs> and I firmly believe nonsense like that. I, I you know, I really did. So um, so lunches were getting to be a problem for me, so I did the next logical thing for an alcoholic. I started doing dinners instead. I do the exact same thing. I get the Ben Benson's at 5.30. I'd have to do it in water. We'd order the seafood towel, the shellfish platter, whatever they called it. All this grandiosity, all this bold. And, um, you know, and then I'd have to take him to see Red Miz or Phantom of the Opera. St. John's basketball was very big back then. We used to St. John's games. And I'd be like, when are they going to leave? Like, I just wanted to play. It was hitting the halftime of the game. I'd be like, when are they going to leave? Like, I want to go out and drink and go to the go-go bars and put down the thing. Insisted on going and cheat on my travel and entertainment forms. And um, so dinners were a problem. So I thought uh, I thought I'd get married and maybe that would put the brakes on things. So I took this beautiful girl hostage and um, 
you know, and we had a great life together. We, we lived in a gated community uh, over by uh, Meadowlands, by the giant stadium over there. And uh, we bought this condo unit because it's actually a bar on the property. It's a place called Harmon Cove. It's actually a place called the Cove Club. And that's what, that's what we built, bought this unit for. Because it was a bar on the property. And I told my now ex-wife, of course, I told her, this is the answer to our problems. I don't have to drink and drive anymore. I can just go to the whole club and I can walk home and I can have a nightcap and all. You know, and this was the sort of thinking that I was involved in. And, um, and the problem was, I'd go to the golf club, I'd get off the bus from the city, I'd go to the golf club, I'd watch Jeopardy with a bunch of other, say two or three other potential alcoholics, and uh, we'd be yelling out all the wrong answers for half an hour, doing beers and shots. And they'd, they'd go home to their wives and kids, and I'm like, well, you know, I want to keep the party going, I want to keep the train moving. So I go into Sea Caucus, I go into the town of Sea Caucus, and, uh, you know, that's my next progression. I'm not coming home at night, I become faithful to my wife. You know, my wife loved me so much. She used to bring me home pamphlets on alcoholism and, and drug addiction. And um, I used to be like, you want me to give these to my friend Mike? Because I heard he's really struggling. <laughs> she was like, no, the community was his rear end. Like, I, I didn't get it. I was in such denial. And, um, and you know, she eventually she tried getting me help. I wasn't ready for it, so she threw me out for being unfaithful, which was fine with me. She was a wet, wet blanket. She was a nag. All those words were used in the literature. So I was thrilled to be rid of her. And um, I moved in with a girl that I met at a place called the Stadium Club out on Route 3 in New Jersey. And uh, I moved in with her, and we both had um, outside of alcohol addictions. And we both drank like fish, so this was going to go well. I immediately moved in my, all my belongings to her apartment. And then that didn't go so well either because police were coming a couple nights a week, the fights, the sink filled with dirty dishes, the electricity being turned off. It was just such a downward spiral. So it was tough off I couldn't get on my feet, you know? Because I take responsibility for nothing. And certainly not with the drugs and alcohol, you know? So, um, so eventually I leave her because it's tough off. I can't get on my feet. I have nowhere to go. I'm almost I'm 38 years old. I begged my mother to let me come home. She said she would let me, but my dad wouldn't. I said, you gotta soften them up, I got nowhere to go. She let me in, I had a rule was I had to stay in the basement, and I had to be out of sight, out of mind, and I wasn't to steal from her purse, I wasn't to take his food, I was to stay in the basement and lay low. And I did that for about a week or 10 days or so. <laughs> and then a lot of the guys that I used to hang around on the street corner, or physically standing on the street corner, will say, they hadn't gone that far from the street corner, but they put it politely like that. So they were thrilled, Sam's back in town, we got a place to hang out and party now, you know? And um, that's when everything really, you know, hit the fan. Um, the alcoholism and the other addictions really took hold to me. And uh, I was at the jumping off point. And um, the loneliness comes back in our, in our literature and stuff. It was just such an awful place. I tried detoxing in April of 2001. I detoxed around the corner here at the Medical Arts Building on 57th and 8th. I spent four nights in there not drinking, not doing the other stuff. And I have a disease that tells me I don't have a disease. So I signed myself out AMA against medical advice. And I, uh, I walked across the street. I walked to a payphone. And uh, I called up my, uh, my drug dealer supplier. And I went home. And I took money from my mom under the guise that I needed groceries. And I went to ShopRite Liquors. And I went and met my supplier. And within two hours of leaving detox, I was doing the same exact thing that I had been doing up until that time. Because that's all I know how to do. I don't know how to stay sober. I know how to drink a drug. So um, 
I went on another 10-day run at the end of April to May 1st. May 1st, I got paid, so I signed over my check, I cleared up all my card pads, I had all the line of credit, so all I did was drink around the clock on May 1st, and on May 2nd, I surrendered. And I went, they, I went back to the detox, but they didn't keep me. They put me on a bus, they shipped me to a rehab in, in Rhinebeck, New York, the cornerstone of Rhinebeck. I don't know where that is. If you gave me a map, I don't know where that place is. But I was up there for 28 days. That I do know. And I just became willing when I was up there. And we did steps one, two, and three over and over and over for 28 days. And I came out and I took their suggestion. I went to a meeting and I put my hand up. I said, I'm Sam, I'm an alcoholic. I just come out of rehab. Everybody gave me their phone numbers. Everybody took my number. I went to Citigroup that first day because they dropped me off on 58. And I walked over to 54th and I went to Citigroup my first day out. And uh, the next day, I was walking around my mom's basement with my cell phone going, I should call, you know, the liquor store, I should call the bar, let everybody know I'm okay down there. Because they haven't seen a husband. I was tight with my boys. I don't know how you guys will, but I haven't seen these guys in 28 days. They've got to be concerned about my well-being. So uh, I wanted to check in with them. And uh, by the grace of God, someone who had taken my number the night before called me and said, are you thinking about drinking? I said, no, not me. I'm all good over here, you know? And he said, uh, he said, how can you tell an alcoholic's lying when his lips are moving? And we went, we met him, and we went to a 5.30 meeting, and then we went to the diner, and then we went to an 8 o'clock meeting. It was the first time in my life I understood that we admit that we are powerless, that our lives are unmanageable. It's a we program. That was the first time I understood that. Um, and that helped me immensely. Not only that, if I called people that had given me their numbers, I would say sober. If I called people I wanted to call, it would have all gone out the window. So I get this guy, Eddie, ought to be my sponsor, and I was clear as day with him. I won't be working the steps that mention higher power or God, because that's for the freaks and the hardcore and the fanatics. No thank you. You told me to keep coming. And um, we went to a 12 and 12 meeting, and um, sure enough, in the 12 and 12, in the second step, it says if you don't have, uh, you don't have any subject of a higher power, why not just a group is the higher power? This is a group of people that I've solved their alcohol problem one day at a time. And you guys became my higher power. You guys were letting me greet. You were letting me make coffee. There were smoking meetings back then. You were letting me clean the ashtrays, which I thought was nuts, but it kept me sober. And, um, and so that was my conception for higher power. When we got to the third step, my sponsor told me I had to change my thinking and more importantly, change my actions. Turning over my life and my will, changing my thinking and more importantly, changing my actions. And he implored me to go home and start saying the third step prayer out of our big book which asks God to relieve me of the bondage of self. I'm the problem. I'm not drinking, I'm not drugging, I'm still a pain in the neck. It's my girlfriend, it's my employee, it's my mom. My dad passed away right after I had 90 days. God saw fit to keep him alive long enough to see me get my 90 day point. You know, I'm yelling at my mom about the checkbook not being balanced. Not taking into consideration, she's not how to do that. You know, so I started getting into the third step prayer. I did the fourth step, I lived to tell about it. You know, I was begging my sponsor, let me do it, let me do it, let me do it. He kept telling me I wasn't ready, the steps were in order for a reason. I kept saying, let me do it, because I want to tell you, how, you know, I want to write down how bad, poorly everybody had treated me. He said, that's not what it's about. So sure enough, six months in, he tells me, all right, I got to start writing it. I said, whoa, 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 let's, let's not rush into anything here. Things are going, going along smoothly, let's not rock the boat. And um, he wouldn't give me my one-year point for my one-year anniversary at the meeting at my home group if I had finished the fifth step. So it took me until the end of that day to do it. Uh, but I did it, and uh, the fifth step for me just blew the doors open spiritually on the program. I 
was tired of all the lies, tired of all the secrets. I shine the light on everything. I drag it out to the curb, and I can be done with all that crap. Pardon my mouth, I'm sorry. Done with all that nonsense. And, uh, and that just happened to me. You know, I felt the nearness of God, all the fifth step promises came true to me on the spot. Uh, we went out, we went for frozen yogurt. We, I didn't take the book down from the shelf and wait it out. We went for frozen yogurt. And <laughs> my sponsor said, what did we learn tonight? Write it down on the back of the frozen yogurt napkin. I said, I learned I'm selfish, I'm self-centered, I'm dishonest, I'm unfaithful, I'm manipulative, among a host of other character defects. He said, which one of these are you not willing to give up? Which one of these do you want to hold on to? I said, well, none of them. They're not working for me, good. He said, good, I want you to go home tonight and start saying a seven-step prayer. I humbly ask God to relieve me of these character defects so I can be of service to God and another human being. I can't be of service to you if I'm still cheating on you, lying on you, manipulating you. I can't be of service. The eighth step was a long list for me. My sponsor called me a roaring tornado to a lot of lives, which is also from the big book. And um, I did it, and he had me, this is just for me, he had me break it into family, friends, and coworkers, prioritize within each section, and then go out and not just tell people I was sorry, because I was always sorry. Sorry for coming to work three days later. Sorry for stealing from my mom's purse. Sorry for cheating on my TNA. I was always sorry. Now I was going to go out and make an amend. And then the fences, then my past. And I would go out and I would tell the people that I'm sorry for the harms that I had caused them. How can I make it up to you? And most importantly, I want you to know I don't live my life that way anymore. And I went out and started making my night step amends. And the night step promises started coming true, just like it's promised in the literature. And a quick side note on the night step, I have two sisters, one of them I didn't talk to for 30 years. She told my parents when I was in high school that I was a drug addict and an alcoholic, so, you know, why should I talk to her? <laughs> my belligerence was unbelievable back then. Um, you know, and, and I started praying for her when I got into AA. My 10-year anniversary, I reached out to her. She accepted my amends, and uh, my birthday is this Thursday. We're having dinner together. She's completely back in my life. And... Um, the 10th step tells me it's a series of checks and balances, not just who did I harm today, who do I own men's to. The 12 and 12, it says it's a series of checks and balances. If not a day goes by where it can't be helpful or useful to someone else. So when I do the 12th, when I do the 10th step, rather, it's, you know, did I stick my hand out to a newcomer? Did I offer somebody a ride that needed a ride? Did I text somebody that I heard was struggling at the meeting? You know, the 11th step is just huge in my life today. Just huge. Um, I believe that God speaks to people in the literature. Um, just for me, I check in with the program every two hours. It is not an exact science. I don't look at my watch and say, oh, it's whatever time it is. I need to do something when I wake up in the morning. I do uh, serenity prayer, third step prayer, seventh step prayer. Uh, when I get to the breakfast table, I read daily reflections. A little while after that, I read the 24 hour book. It's Hazelton, but I read it. And uh, <laughs> at 12.30, I go to Citigroup. And in the afternoon, I call my sponsor, and I ask the men that I sponsor to check in with me. At 5.30, I meditate. I use an app, and I meditate for 15 minutes minimum. Uh, after dinner, now the meetings are back in person, I go to nighttime meetings. And at the end of the day, I do my evening prayers, acceptance prayer, third step, seventh step, eleventh step. Um, I do a gratitude list every night. I don't physically write it out, but I do a gratitude list. Uh, I say it to God. You know, and I'm grateful the smallest things. You know, I'm grateful I had a car to drive here tonight. And, you know, just 21 years ago, I had a cell phone for, for all those substances, you know. And, um, you know, and it's not like that anymore. 
And the, uh, the, so the 11 step is just you. I meditate myself to sleep at night. I put on a different app, a different meditation. And I meditate at night till I fall asleep. It's a 32 minute meditation. I've never heard it all the way to the end, and I'll make it. Um, the 12 step is given back. It's been so freely given to me. Uh, I sponsor a handful of guys that come over my house and walk over my house. And uh, we open up the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we highlight, and we underline, and we discuss the solution that's contained in those pages. Page 25 tells me there is a solution to all my problems once I stop drinking. So the wife's a pain in the neck, and the boss is a jerk, and blah, 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 blah. You know, that, I, I hear you, but we have a solution for all of that. And um, I'm very, very involved in service. My sponsor was a huge service guy. That's how I ended up cleaning ashtrays when I was counting days. You know, he told me there was sobriety in those ashtrays. I thought he was tripping. I was like, what does that mean? You know, and, he, and sure enough, I had to come to him 15 minutes early. I had to set up the ashtrays, and I had to stay 10 or 15 minutes after the meeting to dump them out, wipe them down, you know, and stick with the winners and all that. And I started meeting the people that made the coffee that created, that did the literature. You know, I started meeting these people, and I wanted to be one of those people. So, um, I'm very, very involved in service. I'm involved with jails and the hospitals and the institutions. Uh, for a number of years, I was with Rikers Island. I used to go out there once a month uh, to Rikers and throw a message into the jail. Uh, for the last several years before the pandemic, uh, we go twice a month to Rollway State Prison. If you want to stay sober, go bring a meeting to Rollway State Prison. Just a suggestion. Um, uh, you know, six years ago, I was on it. I was able to speak at the Bill W. Dinner Dance. I'll go anywhere uh, to see if anybody asks me. Thank you, Denver. Was on my hand, the, the fact that they, you know, asked me to come here tonight. Um, I still make coffee, I'm still the treasurer at the group in the morning, I'm the secretary of the Friday morning meeting, so I'm still very, very involved in service, even through the pandemic, because it's, it's what I need to, for me to stay sober. I'm very involved today. So, as a result of these steps, um, I've been given this life beyond my wildest dreams, you know. I was married, um, later this month, 24th, will be 19 years marriage, because I was, I was already dating, I was still active, and no changes in the first year, so I was, still, I, was I, was allowed, I was allowed to keep dating her, and then once I had one year, she was like, all right, well, yeah, what are we doing here? And I think, I, think I, had, I think it was the day after I did my fist that I actually proposed to her, because uh, all, all the decks were there. And so, so we're coming up on 19 years of marriage, my father died, like I said, after I had 90 days clean and sober. Uh, my mom just passed away two years ago. My mom suffered from Alzheimer's, and um, I was able to find a nursing home for her that was 2.0 miles from my house. So I was able to see her and take care of her affairs and go see her uh, every Sunday until she passed. Um, and thank you. And, and uh, we were told we couldn't have children, my wife and I. And you know, we were severely disappointed. We wanted to have a family. So we were told we couldn't have children. We did something I would never consider when I was active, and that was looking at adoption. And while we were looking at adoption, what happens? My wife got pregnant. My son is 17 and a half. Uh, I'm going with him uh, tomorrow night. I'm going to look at some schools in upstate New York. He's looking at colleges now. He's driving. I coached him in baseball and basketball and soccer as a child. Um, most people in Northern Bergen County know he's an AA baby. He's been to many, many meetings with me, and uh, he, you know, put, put pictures of him on Facebook. Everybody knows him, and um, 
You know, I look at his eyes and I see God, because we were told he couldn't have a child. And when he was two years old, we wanted him to do a play maybe. So we tried again, nothing happened this time. We went back to the doctor, and the doctor said, we can't explain him, he's an act of God. It lightning will not strike twice. So we went back and we revisited adoption, and we brought home my son Daniel from Korea when he was six months old, we adopted him, and we brought him home, and Daniel was the apple of my eye. And I coached him in baseball and basketball and soccer, and he liked the Boy Scouts, we did camping and all that stuff. And, um, you know, as the other one got older, he'd spend less time with me. But the little guy would still hold my hand when we walk up to school. He'd still go to Starbucks with me, at ShopRite with me. You know, he's my best buddy. And um, and he was born on the 4th of July in Seoul, Korea. All-American kid born in Seoul, Korea. <laughs> and um, and on uh, July 4th of 2017, he turned 11 years old. And on July 10th of 2017, he didn't wake up. And I've been... Uh, Devastated ever since. I suffered from severe post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, I just went back to work after not being able to work for the last two years. He passed away four years ago. I went back to work too soon. I wasn't ready. But I made it back now. They saved my position for me, my desk, my salary. Works been very, very generous with me. Um, but I'm just devastated. You know, I have an empty bedroom. I have an empty seat at the dinner table every night. And, um, and I get a lot of outside help. I was going to acupuncture, I was going to grief therapy, um, I go to food counseling, food therapy rather. Um, you know, but like I said, at a bare minimum, I go to two meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous a day. And this is where I get to share. And I get to talk about it. You know, if anybody here tonight has a broken shoelace and they're thinking about drinking, you know, I'm part of a group of guys from my home group, and uh, you know, we call ourselves no matter what club, we don't drink no matter what. And trust me, I wanted to drink a lot over the last few years. But if we won't bring them back, if we we'll bring them back, I'd be in, I'd be in a bar in New York City right now, you know. And the thing about drinking is, I can only make my situation. <laughs> worse, because um, we, they opened up a, 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 an Irish pub around the corner from my house. I walked past it every night when I walk in the door. And, um, and when it first opened, this was maybe two years ago, maybe it was even three years ago at this point, but I told my wife, it's not a matter of if I drink, it's just a matter of when. So why don't I go to the Irish pub, drink, I can walk home, you don't have to worry about me drinking. Drinking and driving, you know. And um, she said, yeah, no, that's not gonna happen. She said, um, if you drink, you're done. I said, really? You believe? She's like, no, why would I do? I throw your ass out of here. <laughs> so, uh, I don't wanna be homeless. Uh, she said my son took her side. So uh, I can't stress my love of Alcoholics Anonymous. I can't tell you how grateful I am to have found this program and what an important role in my life it takes. This is the single most important thing I do every day. And um, you know, again, if you got nothing else out of my qualification, please don't pick up that first trigger, that first drug. Congratulations to all the celebrants. Congratulations to all the day counties. 
thank you to the, for the time to speak. It's been wonderful. And uh, I thank you for my recovery. My name is Richard, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, tonight I'm covering it for our chair, Deborah. Let's thank tonight's speakers, Danny, Kim, and Sam. Yeah.